This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 1993, and there's a party at the Moon Tower. The film... Days been confused. Hey, everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we are looking at some of the greatest films of all time and trying to determine what would go on our best of list. Uh, We went through the AFI list. We knocked off 60 of those films. So we have a lot of room to fill our brand new list. And when we have that list completed, we are blasting it off into space. This is not a joke. This is not a bit. We are talking to scientists as we speak about how we can beam these movies into space so the aliens can understand our culture and our world through cinema. And Amy, you know, we've been doing a lot of picking so far. We've been the ones guiding this tour, but today we are turning it over to the listeners. This is a listener's pick for this miniseries. It is. The listeners, uh, we mentioned this a little bit at the end of last episode, the listeners had some great picks. It was a tense battle watching them vote it out, vote it out, decide what was going to be up there. Battle Royale was in the mix for a while. There was some John Hughes, of course. Heathers. Everything was was up for grabs. And the listener pick is, of course, dazed and confused. Um, I have so much I want to say about this film. I'm so excited to talk about it. I'm also really enjoying this conversation that these films have been having with each other. I mean, we spent the last couple of weeks just watching a lot of coming-of-age stories, a lot of uh, high school stories, and I think what I've realized about myself is I love these movies. Like, these movies, they just hit me in the heart in the right way. Like, I can, I was like, if our whole show was only high school movies, I think I would be okay with it. I can watch these and just, I never get sick of them. Well, and I think there's so many good high school movies, we could actually probably do a full year of high school movies. Oh, absolutely. And then we would regress completely and we'd be eating nothing but like flash fried French fries and bad cheeseburgers. And I, you know, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. But, but don't you feel like there is something 
intrinsically hopeful about these films. I mean, there's, you know, it's a bunch of people feeling trapped, which I think we are feeling right now, and looking to the future and what they want to do and where they want to be. And I think right now, maybe in watching these films, I am feeling really empathetic with these characters because it's like, oh, I can't wait to get out of this town. I can't wait to get out of this school. I can't wait to get out of this quarantine, you know? And uh, there is something... I don't know. I feel like this has been the best antidote for me in these uh, COVID quarantine times. (laughs) I hear that. I mean, when it comes to high school, I think I've always been a little bit more like one of the characters we're about to talk about here in Dazed and Confused. I think I've been a little bit more like Randall Pink Floyd, where even in high school, I thought if you if I ever say that these are the best years of my life, please kill me. Oh, yeah. I've not. Yeah, I've never been much for like personal nostalgia. Yeah, I think there's people who like they either live in the past, the present or the future. And I'm very much a future liver, which can be also carry its own ball of stress. But yeah, I've never been much of like, I would love to go back to high school. And yet, I think when I saw a lot of these when I was a kid, I saw them as, you know, aspirational moments of like, here you are, you're poised on the moment of making a big decision. And now when I watch them with kind of the wisdom of seeing the decisions people I know like these movies make, you know, you can kind of fill in more of the blanks. You, you get more of a sense of the lives these characters are going to go on to have. Yeah, I think there's something really um, interesting in the in the sense that we know more now. When we were watching it as kids, we are seeing ourselves in them. And as adults, we are looking at them as kids and seeing, you know, oh, this is a pattern or this is maybe not as cool as we thought it was. And this movie, I think, really articulates a lot of those issues really well. And just to put a, a fine uh, point on this... I don't long for my high school days, but I think I find comfort in these films because they spoke to me so cleanly when I saw them that they hold a special place in my heart. Like, I don't want to go back there, but I want to go back to their high school. I don't want to go back to my high school, if that makes sense. I want to live in the days and confused (laughs) high school. Absolutely. Bring me to, you know, bring me to these places. I don't want to go better. Mine is fine. I mean, it was neither here nor there. I don't care. But uh, there's something about these movies that really, uh, I think, just feels like slightly carefree. It's that one moment of time before you're an adult and you're kind of out of being a kid. And it's such a special area to get to where you have and don't have responsibilities and you are basically on this road of who you want to become and what you want to do and what's important to you. And I, yeah, all this stuff. And I think this movie really articulates all this subtle stuff really, really well. So are you down to get into it? Am I ever? Well, Amy, we should just JKU. Just keep unspooling. The year is 1993, and an FBI siege on the Branch Davidians compound in Waco, Texas, ends in 82 casualties. Canada elects their first and, so far, only female prime minister, but Kim Campbell chooses to leave office after a few months. Nelson Mandela and FWD Clerk are awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their successful efforts to end apartheid in South Africa. The World Health Organization estimates that 14 million people worldwide are infected with the AIDS virus. Remarkable firsts include Beanie Babies and the bagless vacuum cleaner, which is something I love. Uh, I love good bagless. Um, This year's notable films are Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, Schindler's List, Philadelphia, and today's subject, Dazed and Confused. 
1993, a big year in movies that were important to me. And I feel like, I don't know if that's just when I grew up or whatever, but I love 93, 94, really solid movie years. We're hitting it. Uh, let's listen to a clip of Days and Confused. And there you guys were in class trying to list all the Gilligan's Island episodes without even a hint of irony. What in the hell are you talking about, girl? You weren't thinking about it, were you? Gilligan's Island? It's what's called a male pornographic fantasy. Oh, my. Think about it. You're basically alone on a deserted island with two readily available women. One, a seductive sex goddess type. The other, a healthy girl next door type with a nice butt. So guys have it all. The Madonna and the whore. And women get nothing. We get a geek, an overweight middle-aged guy, some nerdy scientific type. I mean, the professor is sexy. All right, Amy, this is a grand task, but who's in it and what's it about? <laughs> I mean, good luck. Good luck to you. I might just do this in the simplest, broadest stroke, man. Yeah. Um, Days and Confused. It is about a small Texas high school on May 28th, 1976, the day that all of the seniors are graduating. But we don't really care about the, those seniors. We care about the seniors who are about to become seniors, the juniors who are now embracing their reign of power and terror by going and terrorizing the middle schoolers, going and throwing parties, celebrating their power. We have everybody in this movie. And in fact, some of the names I'm going to mention first were not famous at all when they're in this film. Uh, people like Ben Affleck, Renee Zellweger, who walks by the camera once, Parker Posey. You've got Matthew McConaughey in his debut film performance. You've got Mia Jovovich, who at the time was probably the most famous person in this film um, from her work in Return to the Blue Lagoon. You've got Joey Lauren Adams, just a gigantic mix and match of fun people smoking a ton of weed, driving around, paddling kids, wearing awesome 70s clothes. And I was thinking when I was watching this film, I'm sure we're going to get into this later, but Dazed and Confused and the look of Dazed and Confused, those vests and those bell bottoms that, to me, 1990s Delia style grunge fashion that started, I think, here and became the way that everybody dressed in my school. I was looking at this film and I was like, this just looks like I'm watching the 90s to me. Like, this looks like 90s and 70s synergizing into one, into one kind of fashionable epic. And so it was funny to watch this film and think about it as like, you know, Rory Cochran stoner looking like the number one stoner of the grunge age. And so I have to admit, when I took this and rewound it back, I was like, man... The number one song on the radio when this movie came out on September 24th, 1993, it had to be like a slamming grunge. We were like, yeah, we're getting in the grunge zone. It is on. We got our long hair. Everything's cool now, man. And actually, this is what was playing. shade on that by the way because that song is still a banger as evidenced by the fact that when we played that every single one of us in our window including Devin and josh started dancing well i mean what was kind of great about this time in the 90s and maybe i'm nostalgic for it because this is my high school time is you could go from a mariah carey song being like number one to like a nirvana song like there were there were levels in this time that i feel like music coexisted a little bit. I mean, yes, TRL was definitely super popular and there was the Britney Spears explosion, but there was 
it wasn't so segmented, or at least that was my imagining of it. I was listening to, you know, I had a Mariah Carey album and I also had like, uh, you know, um, like a Temple of the Dog album. Like, you know, like they were in the same, <laughs> you know, CD case You're so I could pop hungry. it in. <laughs> but, you know, it's like there were, I, I don't, I think music was a little bit more open to uh, you could like a couple of different things, you know, really? uh, I think maybe, so. maybe I mean, it's yeah. just my my Texas upbringing because I was in middle school when this film came out. Um, I thought we were segregated as anything. Like, oh, really? I feel like everybody would ask you what kind of music you listen to. And the only cool answer you were supposed to say was um, everything but country. Yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But that, that, that's what I mean. Like, because you're saying everything but country. That's I mean, and not, country. Yeah. yeah, like and that was like the the rallying cry. Not not that there's a dig on country, but. But that was the time like, oh, yeah, I listened to rap. I listened to like soul and pop and and indie. Like it all just kind of blurred together. I, I thought that was a. I mean, I'm definitely not like in it in this way, but it seems like music is much more compartmentalized right now. And maybe that's because you can just put on your Spotify playlist and listen to whatever you want. And you don't have to like be, you know, deferential to the radio. That's true. So wait, you said everything but country even up north because i always oh, thought that was a thing yeah. that you said no, in texas that was... as a way to like distinguish yourself from the cowboy people no no you know, no no, no. Like that was all the cowboy people no well, we that was them kickers did you have that we didn't ever call i mean i never called anybody a kicker but uh but i mean that that answer was like the i remember asking people like what music do you like but don't just say everything but country like you would almost try to <laughs> you know stop it before <laughs> you could do it but no, that was a, I think that was a big a big deal. Um, I mean, but I'm just looking I'm looking at the list right now of '93. It's like Prince had a number one song, Janet Jackson had a number one song, Guns N' Roses had a number one song, Brian Adams, Ace of Bass, Roxette, Criss Cross, uh, you know, Tony, Tony, Tony. You know, it's like it go. It's really a crazy Madonna, Bon Jovi, ACDC, Rage Against the Machine, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Phil Collins. You know, it's like. Pet Shop Boys. Phil Collins. What yeah. was Phil Collins on the charts with in 1993? Both sides of the story. I mean, I was. I guess oh. it was a number one in the UK. Sorry, uh, but anyway. <laughs> but I mean, that, but that's like, but that's a pretty crazy list of you know big hits uh, or different types of people. I mean, maybe this is this kind of ties in together what you were saying at the beginning of this, like. I don't consider myself a nostalgic person except for the music of my childhood. And when yeah. you say that list, I actually feel really proud. Like, yeah, of course I'm nostalgic for that. It was the absolute best. But we're talking about a movie where one third of its budget is spent not celebrating the music of the now, 1993, but the music of the past. And this is one of these big movies like Forrest Gump that bring me an appreciation of the music of the 70s. Uh, Forrest Gump does more with the 60s as well, but uh, there's so many songs. This soundtrack was in my car, played all the time. I loved it, and it felt like, oh, this is music for me. I feel like now I'm watching kids really into Nirvana, like that are in high school, the way that when I was in high school, people were really into Jim Morrison, right? It was like, oh, the doors, the doors. Um, so wait, you're saying that where you grew up, you cruised into like the White Castle, blasting sweet emotion. Oh, hell yeah, that was me, Amy. Look, I mean, this movie, I mean, the, the songs in this movie are great. We talked about this in 
uh, Fast Times. And I think Fast Times is a little bit more, like, there are great songs in it. Coolie High, like, this and Coolie High, Terrific put them songs. together and be like, you can't beat this on a track listing. You know, these two films really are just, like, the cream of the crop. Um, no, I will say, ever since we have done our Coolie High episode, I haven't stopped listening to Smokey Robinson. That's uh, all I've been listening to. So just good. loud in my house, nonstop. I just want to talk about a couple of things in this film. Uh, I'm sure it'll take about an hour and a half. I just want to say, first of all, I probably am going to be biased on this film in the sense that when I hit play, I was like, oh, I'm back. It it brought me in in a way that I wasn't expecting. I watch this movie so much and I just, it embraced me. Like, I appreciate Fast Times. I saw it a handful of times, but I love this movie. I love this movie in the same way that I love Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, it was a seminal film to me, like a movie that was on in the background of my house, you know, just because it's like, I'm playing Days and Confused again. I was working at Blockbuster. I had like the cover box for it. I bought it when it was like, uh, you know, a, a used version of it, whatever it was. So I apologize to anyone listening if I'm missing on some of the faults here because I think I irrationally love this movie. Uh, or I've realized that. I didn't know it until I hit play on it. Um, <laughs> so I apologize in advance, but I want to say the thing that I was struck with um, in this film is this is, or this could be, eight different films, right? This is the only film that I think that we have seen in this grouping where every subplot has enough meat on the bone to be its own story. And the fact that he takes this monster cast and weaves in multiple stories, or, you know, and and subtleties in those stories, like, it's it's unbelievably masterful. And I think we have to put slacker into this conversation because I feel like there's an element of that in here, which is uh, his first movie, like a really independent film. like, But the way that this movie weaves so effortlessly, and when you pull it apart, you're like, holy shit, how many characters are here? And I know enough about every one of them. So at the end, I'm getting like hits of arc completion on, I, I would say, more than five characters. I mean, I don't know if I would say art completion, because I think part of what gives it that spell of I want to spend more time with each one of these is that you actually never really get to know them that well. You know, yeah, they kind of they don't really even have arcs in my view. They don't kind of rise and fall and be like, here's my life. You know, this is what I did. It, it's more just like you're getting a taste of who they could be. I guess it, you're right. I mean, this I, film feels that, like yes. defiantly anti-arc. You know, I guess what I'm feeling is. I should maybe say not say arc, but like I went on a journey with I went oh. on a journey with these characters. Like I feel like I You went to the liquor store. Yeah, like I hung out with these characters. I hung out in each one of these groups for the night. Yeah. If that makes you sense. Shared it, a, you puff puffed and you passed. Yeah, like I don't know, like they're like because you're right. It's not like, oh, they went from being this to that. It's not that, but it it does like I feel like, oh wow, I had a moment with each of these people, or I was there and so I don't know what that word is, but I was really impressed with that. Yeah. And maybe you're right. Maybe the fact that it's not about telling a defined story. It's about really, it's a hangout movie. It's like, we're just, and I think that's what Cooley High is, a hangout movie. Like, we're hanging out with these characters. These things happen to them. But in this film, what I think makes it elevate so much more is nothing too dire is going on in many respects 
this is the most grounded coming-of-age, back-to-school movie that we have done. The parents are involved. The kids are dealing with normal things. Sex is not super taboo, but it's also not, uh, it's not like, it's not all about sex. Drugs are involved, but it's not about the dangers of drugs. No one's getting hurt. No one's getting killed. There's no threat of violence. It's kids being kids dealing with a night, a night of how kids are at a party. Like these vibes, I just, I really bought into. Like, I, I don't know if that, I think because it's so light, it also feels so grounded and real. No, I think that's true. I mean, it, you know, the film that I think has cast a huge shadow over this entire miniseries has been American Graffiti, obviously, right? Like every single film has been compared Absolutely. to American Graffiti. And if it wasn't compared to that, then it was compared to Fast Times later right. on. You know, like this film is very much con- compared to Fast Times when it came out and to American Graffiti. But I think you see a lot of that American Graffiti parallel on the top note of this movie. You know, it's like kids driving around all night in a bored town, going in and out, getting burgers, figuring out what to do. But then you think about what Linklater decided not to do. Like, he tried to call this the anti-American graffiti, which I don't think you can quite go there. But at the end of American Graffiti, George Lucas had those annoying little, like, here's what happened to oh, this person, and here's what happened so to this person. Excited. And he capped their stories. Right. He ended their stories. And Linklater doesn't do that here. You know, well, he really yeah. was like, I want to set it in one night where nobody makes a life-changing decision. Like, he didn't, he even thought that Fast Times was too melodramatic in the fact that there's an abortion. Linklater was like, what if I make a film without any, even that? What if I take away all of the drama of being well, a child? And that's what I love about this movie. This feels like a real high school experience in the sense of not everything has to be this life-changing moment, right? There is something identifiable in all these characters because of the lack of stakes. But the stakes that they have are high for them, right? But they're not like an abortion. It is like... I don't want to sign this document that says I won't smoke weed because I feel like it's, you know, tamping down who I am or it's, you know, it's meeting a girl. It's these, you know, where the party's at or my dad found out there's a party or the party's not there. Like these issues that you are dealing with as a high school student for the most part. Like and yes, there are bigger issues, of course. And this is representing a very specific area and and time. But. I think that this is more relatable than most films because it's so kind of naturalistic in its issues, problems, and obstacles. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that pledge. You know, Mm -hmm. the pledge as it gets set up in this film really early on. You're just a few minutes into this film and you hear what this pledge is and get it tied to McCarthyism, another Mm -hmm. word that we've talked about a lot on this show. All right, this is totally amazing. I voluntarily agree to not indulge in any alcohol, drugs, or engage in any other illegal activity that may in any way jeopardize the years of hard work we as a team have committed to our goal of a championship season in 76. That's bullshit. You guys are actually signing this crap? Apparently. God, what are they going to do next? Like, give you guys urine tests or something? See, I, I just didn't know that drugs and alcohol were such a big problem that they had to resort to neo-McCarthyism. No, I think they're just afraid some of us might be having too good a time. It's the old age-suppressing youth thing, you know? What is so interesting about the way this pledge is handled is, yes, it's kind of on the back burner of Pink Floyd's mind the whole time. And at the end, he does have that cool moment where he, like, crumples up the pledge and he throws it at the coach and he's like... I'm not going to sign it and maybe I'll play. Maybe I won't. Yeah. Linklater never lets us know whether or not he plays or not. Like we actually never know. We never know after all of this fuss about the pledge, is he going to play football the next year or not? Are they going to back down? And that's the sort of thing that I feel like 
you're almost itching for that kind of phony title card to be like, he didn't play and then he became a lawyer. Or but, don't, yeah, some- but don't you think the best ending for that character is him driving with those friends? Like he didn't compromise. Like he will be, I feel like Pink Floyd will be an individual. I don't care where he, like if he's a lawyer or if he's anything, he was like, I like these people. They are my friends. We're going to go get Aerosmith tickets. And that's how it ends. It's sort of like he has a confidence in himself. Like, I don't need to fit into a system if I don't agree with it or you can't judge me. I, there's something really fulfilling about that last shot that that him on the open road. It's like you're leaving town. You're going into the world the right way. Like you're going into the world. It's not like, oh, he's hanging out with stoners. He's going to be a fucking stoner. It's like, no, no, no. You made a choice and you're happy and he's happy in that car. And and there's no, there's just like a pride in that moment. I don't, that's how I read it. No, you're right. I mean, I think it's really interesting that it says something about who he is as a person and not who he is going to be as a person in this school. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because well, you said it earlier. It's just like, such a deliberate cut to like, like, it would be so easy even to add like a two second thing to that scene where the coach is like, well, you're off the team, mm-hmm. you know, or it's fine, son. Like, we just never know. And I think that's such an interesting choice that we never know. Well, he does that monologue, which you referenced in the beginning of the show about like, I don't want to be one of those people that says that this is going to be the best years of my life. I mean, here, let's let's just play that one scene. Hey, you know, you're the third person who's given me this today. God. But what do you reckon you're going to do? I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing it. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're going to try and make for you. You got to do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. And let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules are going to try to get you to follow. <laughs> you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> man, if you're going to sign that paper, man, you should throw a little grass right in the middle, man. Roll it up. Yeah. Sign the joint, man. That's going to tell them something. That's yeah. what I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> assholes. Yeah, so what? They're all a bunch of assholes. But you got to think about it. We've had a lot of really good times right here, Pink. Yeah, I mean, come on, Pink. I can't believe this. You act like you're so oppressed. And you guys are kings of the school. You get away with whatever you want. What are you bitching about? Well, look, all I'm saying is that if I ever start referring to these as the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. Well, all I'm saying is I just want to look back and say that I did it the best I could while I was stuck in this place. Had as much fun as I could when I was stuck in this place. Played as hard as I could when I was stuck in this place. Dogged as many chicks as I could when I was stuck in this place. Those two sentiments of not wanting high school to be the best years of your life and I did the best I could while I was stuck in this place are really, I think, triumphant things to say from a high school student, right? It it shows like, oh, their aspirations, their goals are bigger. It, It almost, to me, is saying... They want more. They're adults. Like they're they are. They want to go into the real world. I love that. Like I, it's so subtle. And in another another movie, I think that would be weighted. Like he would say that to the coach, right? And the coach would be dumbfounded, like, ah, 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 yeah, I don't know. And then you know, walk off. It's said casually to a group of friends about what what he wants, and he's trying to figure out what he wants. Like when he talks about being in a band versus being in or on the football team, it's like. Why do I have to conform? Like, like, and I think that's the question. Like, we are. I'm watching it with my son right now. It's like he's going to school. You have to go to school. You have to do your homework. You have to do this. And this is the moment where, like, no, you 
are going to start making your own choices. Like, yes, we're putting you on these guide rails until you get to a place. And I, that birth is so interesting. Sorry, I'm talking too much and I'm so excited about this character. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. I think it makes a good balance because, you know, I'll say that this is not a film I've seen a ton. Like mm-hmm. I've seen it a couple times, but like you come at it with this deep, deep love. And I come at it with like, I think I'm actually more of a slacker person just because I'm, you know. Of course you are. And I don't mean yeah. that in a derogatory way, but I, <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, in the grand I, scheme of things, Amy, you should be the Clippers fan and I should be the Lakers fan. That is th- th- that is the <laughs> only thing that doesn't make sense about our relationship. You got to run with the big dogs, man. I know, I know. But that's not you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. I believe this movie came out when I was a junior. I can't separate myself, and I know I can't separate myself, so I am also allowing myself to hear other perspectives of it. But I I just love, like, Wiley Wiggins' story is, like, I see myself in all of these characters. I mean, his story is so... He's neither a nerd nor is he super popular. He's got his small group of friends. He's a baseball player, and he has this, like, really wonderful night, and, like, him being drunk coming home and putting on those headphones at the end is as triumphant to me as Pink Floyd driving off into the distance. It's like, this is like, oh, they're going to be okay. I think that's how I feel. Like, they're going to be okay. And I think what American Graffiti does, and to a certain extent, what Cooley High does is say, uh, we don't trust you to make your own assumptions of what happens. Like, we're going to tell you that if they are going to be okay or they're not going to be okay. So if you feel weird about anything, we're going to dictate how you should feel or manipulate you. And I think... That's more for American Graffiti. And I think Cooley High does more of like, let's just, we'll walk you through. Well, it's okay. It's not bad. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think what's what's kind of interesting about this story, the way that it's set up, you know, and I'm even kind of using the word story in quotation marks, this just, this night is, I think the most regimented thing about it is that Linklater is creating these parallels. You know, like you have on one thread, you have, is Pink Floyd going to grow up and become a man on his own terms. And then right underneath him, you have, is Wiley going to grow up and go into high school on his own terms? Mm. You know, like they're, they're kind of following this same thread. Yeah. But then you also have like the kind of parallel thread between like Wiley Wiggins and um, the other young girl, Sabrina, you know, like, are they going to hang with the cool kids? Are they going to take the punishment and rise above it and enter? There's like this passing of the torch you see from like Wiley, like Wiley receiving it. Um, from Pink Floyd, like here you are, you're going to be like the cool jock, long haired guy who like doesn't take anything too seriously and gets along with people like you have now become me. Right. He is in a way rebelling against who he is, but also creating a version of him. It's like, it's almost like I am dying and you are now going to be the me, right? Like it's a weird, because he's getting out of it, but yet he's creating a version of himself because he knows yeah. that that needs to be in the ecosystem. I don't know. Maybe that's way I too am, deep. No, but I think you're right. He's like, I am transcending. And I, it when like um, a hermit crab takes mm-hmm. off its shell 
And it's like, I've outgrown the shell. I'll leave it here. Next smaller hermit crab, grab my shell. You can wear right. it for a while. That's exactly what it feels like. It, it, it feels like this passing of the torch and then also just this mirror thing between like what's happening to the young boy and what's happening to the young girl. You know, they're both falling under the wing of like an older person who's like, I welcome you into the school. There's um, both of them have bullies they're fighting. You know, like yeah. Wiley is really looking out for Ben Affleck. And poor Sabrina is like really nervous about Parker Posey. And it just, oh. it's like the same things happening to both of them as they level up into this next world. And it's so symmetrical oh, that it, yeah. kind of, it almost unnerves me. I'm like, do we have to kind of repeat the scene for well, girls and guys? But then I wouldn't want it to only be the guys or the girls story. Yeah, well, that's what I think is so interesting. It's like watching this amazing balancing act because it's so effortless in the way that it tells a story and involves so many people. But yet you're also seeing, and I think it's so brilliantly done, the hazing. Like what the girls do to the girls and what the guys do to the guys and why the guys do it and what the girls do. like, And they're underscored with these amazing uh, numbers. I mean, I I, I want to just talk about that beating scene, the no more Mr. Nice Guy beating scene. Like that is a fucking intense scene. When they finally get Wiley Wiggins, uh, who has the best name of all time, when they get him and they beat him, the the joy and the pain. I mean, that I don't want to belittle it. I just want to say that the violence of that scene is something that you would see in a drama that it, it but you underscore with this music and you see the joy in their faces. There is something I don't know. I I I wanna like just pick apart that scene a little bit because it really it emotionally gets me like I feel for him getting hit. Like he's being beaten but it is a rite of passage and they're enjoying it and they're not even doing it because they have any reason to but because somebody did it to them and you underscore this the music actually does a lot of conversation and probably in a way that's a little too on the nose at certain points like no more mr nice guy like there's a couple moments where you can really like but it's great the music is great but uh but yeah that scene i mean how did that scene affect you watching him just get just pummeled like that well you know i think the best thing about about that scene that makes this scene interesting is that Wiley Wiggins looks hurt. Like he yes. really looks hurt. Like this isn't one of those like movie showdowns where he's like, all right, guys, I'll take my pad. No. Like he's not Shane. You know, no. he looks beaten. And he's he gets- on that verge of like, I'm not crying, but I am in so much pain. Like it, it like it's a really intense moment. No, he he looks like a little kid. You know, yeah. he and he is a little kid. Like you see the little kid that he is. Ben Affleck looks so huge and they are not trying at all to be no. nice to him. I mean, if there is a message to this movie, I think it kind of is in that scene. Like what you do in life is you take your licks and if you take them well, you know, then you can move on in life. You can kind of level up like if you get that he gets his punishment and as his reward, he's like welcomed into the group a little bit. Whereas his friends who run away from the punishment and like leave him out to dry really are like, here you go. We're going to head this other way. They're never going to be welcomed into high school quite as cool. So there's something about almost martyrdom. I mean, this is something in our culture too. It's, you know, I think there are people out there that use, this is going to get into much more of a heady place than I wanted it to, but like use abuse as a justification. Like I, I was abused by my boss. So now I'm going to abuse you and I'm not doing it because I want you to be abused, but I learned that way. And I think that that's the way Like some people don't know how to, I don't know, bring people forward without recreating their own trauma on them. Um, 
And, you know, and some people do. And I think that Pink Floyd does. Like, you know, he's he's not taking any joy in hitting this kid. Like, he's not going to hit him. Like, he does that, like, little smart spank. And I think you see a little version of this in, in the girls as well. Like, Parker Posey, National Treasure, the best, makes everything interesting, makes everything bizarre. Her character is probably the only person who doesn't feel like a Texan in this movie. Uh, maybe to you can speak to that. But she's, no, she doesn't she, seem too Texan, no. Yeah, she's... On another level, like the way that she's enunciating, the way that she's performing, like, and it all works. It's so like dumb, but she is the Ben Affleck. Like she's the, you know, she's the O'Bannon on the other side. And there is something about both of those characters of what they, what they're, why why are they like that? And then there's other people around them. You know, it's like, I don't know. Like, what what do you think about that? Like that that character and those two characters in particular, and and the joy that they take in really the humiliation. Yeah, I mean, Parker Posey said that her read on the character was that she had been abused horribly mm. when she was a freshman, and she actually talked to her aunt about it. Like her aunt, um, when her aunt was a kid, when she she had been really hazed by a girl, and what the girls did to her at her aunt's school was they tied oysters to dental floss. Like raw oysters to dental wow. floss, made the girls swallow it, made her aunt swallow it, oh. and then pulled it back up. Uh. Yeah. So that uh, is, I think, what Parker Ooh. put into the character. Like, I have been through this. I mean, in a way, it reminds me, and again, I don't, I'm not going to try to get up to off subject here, but talking about that larger conversation about like women in leadership roles. I think that was a thing that we kind of have seen coming out of like the 80s. Like I had to tough it out. My bosses grabbed my ass. Like uh, just toughen up, be harder. Like I think we're trying to deal with that and make better workplace judgments. But yeah, yeah, I think there is sort of like if I had to take this punishment, what's your problem? Right. It's sort of like I am getting back at the person who hurt me by hurting you, which is creating more of a cycle of hurt. Hurt people, yeah. hurt people. But, but you know uh, what really impresses me yeah. about it, though, is that all of these juniors can really pinpoint who's an eighth grader. Because, like, I think all children are the same age. Mm. And that these juniors can drive around, like, their town and be like, that one is definitely 13. That one is probably 12. That one is probably 14. Uh, and just a freshman I haven't seen. Their, their way of recognizing children is, I mean, really amazing. Well, I will say that for all of these films, one of the issues I've had has been... They all look so old. And one of the great parts of this film is by adding in these incoming freshmen who look so much younger, right? Like when you look at Ben Affleck, who I I like his performance, it's unhinged. Um, he is intimidating. He's bigger. Uh, even uh, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, Pink Floyd's buddy who's on the football team, too, who, you know, is like flirting with the teacher. Like, oh, they yeah, are the eyebrows. Exactly. Uh, Like they have this energy about them. They feel so much bigger. And I think like that just physical difference between them really helps the movie because it doesn't feel like um, it's the only time that we've really seen that. We've like a mixing of grades and hanging out like where you feel like, oh, that person is definitely younger. Like Wiley Wiggins looks like a child and his two buddies look like children. Um, It's a really I think it's really great casting, smart casting. I mean, now, interestingly enough, Matthew McConaughey who plays the guy who hangs around high school after he's left high school is younger than most of the people in the cast when he's doing (laughs) this movie, which is bizarre, but yet he pulls it off too. Like he, he looks with that mustache. He looks like this. I mean, 
it's interesting. He's a creep, right? He's a creep. He is a creep. Or is he not a creep? What, what do you think? Oh, he's a thousand percent a creep. I mean, although I don't know if Linklater thinks he's that much of a creep. Like Linklater admitted that when he was 26, he was dating a 16 year old. So I think oh, wow. there might have been a moment in Linklater that was like, that's normal, isn't it? Oh, well, you, it's not normal. OK, I, well, I realize it is not. Well, you see that with Anthony Rapp, too. And I feel like there was a lot of in my high school uh seniors dating people much younger than them, right? And I don't know, you know, you see that in real life too. You see a, you know, 45-year-old man dating a 25-year-old. But I feel like when Anthony Rapp is like, he's also having that experience of like, is that weird? Like she's so young. She's literally is in eighth grade and he is going to be 18, you know? And uh, I thought that was an, I thought that was an interesting story, but I think what was, what makes, tell me if I'm, if I'm going out of line here and saying this, I, I don't want to be like, but, um, when McConaughey is flirting with Cynthia, I kind of like it. I think they're like, oh, I feel like, oh, this character is more interesting. He's not like a perv. Like, I feel like he's like flirting with this girl that like is interesting to him or there's something about her because she's not like like the quote unquote hot girl. I think she's incredibly attractive. I'm just saying, but like he's going out of the norm a little bit and it doesn't feel like he's like creeping on her. He actually feels like he's trying to connect with her. Or do you see that totally differently? I feel like he is flower picking. Like he's okay. built up this bouquet and now he's like, that's an interesting flower. I've never picked that flower before. Okay, I'm going to take it home. And I think she'll be fine. I think she'll be like, that was an exciting summer. She'll probably, ooh, now I'm projecting. I'm a nerdy girl who like dated older guys when I was in high school. Uh, It'll become a cool story someday. She'll be like, this is fucking guy. And then she'll see him working at a gas station when she has a cool job. And she'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was hung up on that weirdo. He really uh, made me exciting for one summer, though. <laughs> well, you know, that scene where he flirts with her, totally an afterthought. It was, uh, I guess, McConaughey had come in for costume fitting uh, and... Richard Linklater was approving him. And then he was like, oh, get in the scene right now and flirt with her. And they just did it on the fly because Linklater is like, you would be attracted to her. And I love that 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 is in here in the sense of the movie. Also, I think like going back to soccer is evolving. It's like, oh, I like the way this looks. And, you know, the way he looks in that outfit and the way that she's been looking, the way she's been acting with her group, because I love that group, too. I'm getting that group. But there's an interesting dynamic there. And he. Oddly, for being the guy who hangs out in the town, it's very smart, right? Like he he is kind of like a a soothsayer. Like he he is on board with basically like don't don't change who you are, and he's not a cautionary tale. I don't feel like no, he's a cautionary I, yeah. tale, right? I feel like he could have been a cautionary tale if he was cast differently. Right. You know, I, I think that Linklater actually intended that character to look a lot more sleazy. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, the whole story of McConaughey getting cast is, like, amazing. Like, basically, McConaughey was at home and he was watching a movie with his girlfriend. And his girlfriend was like, let's go out. I want to go out. I want to go out. I want to go out. And so, reluctantly, McConaughey was like, okay, fine. Let's go to this bar at the Hyatt because that's where my friend works as a bartender. And so, we right. can get some cheap drinks. And, of course, that was the hotel where a lot of the people were staying, including Don Phillips, who was actually the person who cast Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Whoa! Yeah, they had, like, the same casting person and producer working on both of them. And so what happens is, like, McConaughey shows up at this bar. His bartender buddy is like, you see the guy at the end of the bar? He cast Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And McConaughey wanted to be a director more than an actor at this point. But he was like, I'll go talk to that guy. And so they just start talking. 
shooting the shit. They wind up getting so drunk that McConaughey sends his girlfriend home in a taxi and then they get kicked out of the bar somehow and they go up to Don Phillips's room and they're not talking even about this movie. Like right. McConaughey's not trying to chat him up at all. They're talking about sports and stuff. But McConaughey is so annoyed that this buddy was kicked out of the bar that from the, the hotel room, he calls down to the manager's office and he's like, you kicked us out. And he like reads the manager, the riot act for kicking Don Phillips out of the bar and he gets the manager to apologize. Wow. And this whole thing was just so... It was such like a display of raw Texas charisma that Don Phillips finally was like, do you act? And McConaughey was like, I've been in a beer commercial. And he was like, well, you're going to probably be doing this movie. And then he auditioned. I mean, this is actually his audition, which is all over the Internet if you want to watch it. Hey, you're a freshman, right? Yeah. It's nice to see your freshman college chicks. <laughs> hey, what is the boy? That's what I love about high school girls, man. I keep getting older, but they say the same age. I have to say a couple of things about that. Please. Okay. I, I want to I hear everything, and I hope you're going to reference Headbangers Ball. Yes. One, Matthew McConaughey is wearing a Headbangers Ball t-shirt, which I just love. That's I love amazing it. that he's a Ricky Rackman fan. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. Ricky Rackman, the best. Two... You seem, it almost hurts to look at McConaughey in that audition. I have almost never seen a naturally more charismatic, beautiful actor, right? Like you just watch him own that camera to know he's not even really trying to be an actor. It's not even his main thing in life. But I would, shows up. but I would go one step further and go it. Yes. All that is true. But for a link later to look at that and go, I can't put that in my movie. But how can I take what he has and create his character? Because he looks young, sexy, like he looks like a surfer dude. Like he could be Pink Floyd. Like that yeah. audition. He and But yet for him to be able to parse out, I got the charm. Let me put a different mask on it. Let like, me put a mustache on it. It's just like throw but, a mustache but, on the shit. But, but put the hair in the way like he he ages him up. And he like, I mean, I'm like, actually, I'd never seen that before. Like, I'm really impressed. Like, to see through that, he gets an amazing performance. And I think sometimes people aren't able to always see how you can put essentially a hat on something because that charisma is what you need. But the look is so not right. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's so rare to be in the presence of watching a movie star get created mm. like that. And and. You know, in that in that audition tape, he has his famous line, like, I get older, they stay the same age. But the way that he delivers that line in the movie, it's almost like he knows that's his movie star moment because he steps a little bit back out from the wall. He squares his body to the camera, but he doesn't look at the camera. Like, he doesn't look... He, he could almost just be like, da-da-da-da-da, this is my catchphrase. He just commands focus. It's like he knows he's becoming a movie star, I think, even in that moment. Even though a lot of it was improv, like, do you know where he came up with that idea of all right, all right, all right? I had heard it was because of a Jim Morrison, like, recording, right? Yeah, he was just sitting around in the car, like, getting in character, listening to The Doors, and he heard this part from a Doors live album. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Oh, wow. And now, you know what that makes me believe? Uh, Linklater gave each character a mixtape. And he was like, this is what you listen to. Only this. This informs you. This is you. And I wonder, you know, I mean, if that was on the tape that he was listening to in the car and that all, you know, it's all again, 
whatever he picked up from it. It's a, a really cool way of giving. I've worked with a lot of directors who've given me mixtapes of what the tone of the movie is. And you can kind of feel the energy of the movie uh, before you shoot the movie. Um, but to have a personal character mixtape, of course, that's his like in his mind. He's he's imitating that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting when you hear about how this film was put together is that kind of shagginess of figuring out who the characters are, who the actors are. It it almost doesn't feel scripted. Like it, the film feels as lazy isn't the right word, maybe like deliberately hazy improv. I mean, mm-hmm. the way that they cast a lot of this, Don Phillips was saying, um, the same Don Phillips, is that he did the same thing that he did at Fast Times, which is that he picked 40 people he was thinking about casting in the film to do an all-day pizza party where he had all of these pizzas set up. He had all of these young actors. Several of them had act characters in mind that they were auditioning for, but he just watched everybody mix and match, eat pizza, trade the lines with each other, do it in different combinations. And he saw who he thought would be good, which some people in the cast thought it was like amazing. Some people were like, this is the most fun thing I've ever done. And, you know, to like right. audition this way. And other people, like I think uh, Joey Lauren Adams was like, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, because wow. you're like sitting with the other people that you, you're supposed to like and trying to be outward and engaging and friendly with them, but try to get like Don's attention to let him know that you could do this part, but also you're trying to compete with them and kill them. She said it was like so stressful. But of course, one of the people who loved that style of auditioning was Jason London because he, um, in his scene, he was supposed to be trying to make out with girls all day. So he was making out with girls all day. Oh man, creepy. That is not good though. Uh, what was it this? Um, I think when you're casting a teen movie, that's probably the best way to go because I think you want something like no one else could play that Rory Cochran role in my mind without it being a little bit more over the top. They like he plays it in a way that I'm like, oh, I hung out with that kid, that kid who wore that kind of hat that, you know, walked that way. You have to find and I think it's sort of like what Kubrick talked about or even Fincher, like this idea like once you do a bunch of takes and the acting stops and then you will actually will do the lines and you'll become this character. Like I know that he said that for The Shining and I think Fincher has that belief too, like after 25 or 50 takes, like you start to actually lose the affectation. And I think when you're casting a high school movie, everyone's so rehearsed. These younger kids, they know how to work the system. I know how to audition. They know how to, like they're so um, polished that you want to you wanna see them lose the shine and the luster and see them get flustered and see who they really are because I think that that shows up and that's why these characters pop. And I'm for as many people in this movie that did pop, I'm so bummed that others did not. Like, you know, because it is. It's like Mila Jolovich, uh, you know, barely speaks in this movie. She pops, obviously, but there's so many little people like Wiley Wiggins. To me, I'm like, oh, I'm surprised that Wiley Wiggins didn't become like a huge movie star. And like, you know, and people obviously, I mean, it's so hard. This is a hard business. Well, yeah, this is actually Wiley Wiggins and uh, Christine Hinojosa, who played Sabrina, talking about why they didn't pop. And this movie comes into town and, you know, I know it was really exciting. I finished high school, but I finished high school a year early so that I could move out to L.A. Nikki Cat talked me into moving to L.A. I think it really messed me up being out there. Going to L.A. was hard. You really have to play the game. You really do. I was never able to do anything as in-depth as Dating Fuse. And I also think I just wasn't quite good enough. I didn't work for the whole, the whole year I was there. I finally, um, I was living 
I had got an apartment in downtown Los Angeles on Rampart, which is a really crappy area. And I got a job way out in Encino doing um, uh, title effects for HBO soft porn. I realized that um, my greatest gifts don't lie, lie in acting. I was much better at working in social service and being a leader in that field. You're right, like there's, not everyone has to go on and do more, but there was an insulation of being an Austin film. And I think that that's what Richard Linklater kind of thrives in is like small bubbles. I mean, boyhood was just like shot on the side. Like, you know, it's like he's not working in that Hollywood system. So you can thrive here, but that doesn't necessarily translate. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're really seeing in these teen films is that every 10 years, a big teen film comes out with a gigantic ensemble and it almost rejuvenates acting. You know, like these, this teen film came out at a time if you're like teen films, I don't know, just like just like American Graffiti was before this, just like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Teen films are kind of out. The actors have gotten a little bit old in Hollywood. Nobody's totally right. Then somebody's like, here's a movie with 20 people. Here are your next stars. And like several of them get promoted up and become major stars and rejuvenate what we have going on in Hollywood. And I was thinking like, it even the parallel of the fact that we like to do it with movies set in the past as a way of like the older actors or the older screenwriters being like, it's okay, these kids get you. Like they're new and they're young and they're raw, but they understand where you're coming from. You know, so look, they're set in the in the 70s. They understand you. It made me think of Netflix's Stranger Things. Like that's another thing where it's like, here's a gigantic mm-hmm. ensemble of young actors. We're setting in the past. They understand you. They're part of you. They get your culture. But these are your new movie stars. Carry them forth. By the way, um, if I could just take a moment to talk about Galen from uh, Stranger Things, uh, you must watch his prank show on Netflix, which is a continuation of the Scare Tactics franchise. Um, uh, And it's one of the best things ever. I'm a huge Scare Tactics fan. And uh, I hope only more from that character and that actor, because uh, that is the future. More prank comedy scary shows. And uh, it's so good, Amy. (laughs) I need you to watch it. We need to do a whole episode of that. Oh, I might watch it. I mean, I, I did see a movie um, called Spree that has Joe Carey from oh, yeah. um, Stranger Things. I did movies with Joe Carey. Oh, he's so good in that movie, actually. He's yeah. playing like a sociopathic, uh, online obsessed, incelish murderer, but he's really terrific. He drives an Uber. He's very funny oh, yeah. in the way he does that character. It, is that a Quibi movie or is that like a, a real movie movie? I think it's a real movie movie movie. Um, Zashir Zamat is in it. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, uh, you're right. And um, I want to take one moment for a detour and just say this. That is why what you just described about this reinvigoration of Hollywood that I was so mad at. Uh, and I didn't think I was going to talk about it, but I'm going to talk about it. That fucking Fast Times uh, read through that they did for charity. And I think <gasps> the charity is amazing. Oh, and yeah. I think that Sean Penn is doing an amazing job at COVID testing in L.A. And I bowed down to Curative, which is a company he's behind. But that was a crock of shit. You basically yeah. put people who are all 50 plus or yeah. late 40s in a teen movie table. I'm like, fuck, get the fuck out of here. That was so... It was so weird. Uh, it was so. It wasn't even fun, and the casting was boring. And I don't know. I mean, it was great to see Jen and and uh, and Brad and whatever. But it was. But it's like that was such a weird thing to take a a teen movie and cast it with like people in there, like full on adult. They're not even like thirty year olds. Like you're just gonna cast this with like people who are literally fifty, fifty. And that's no. I love a fifty year old. No, but I'm just I saying. Mean, I, yeah. 
I love a fifth jewel too, but Julia Roberts and the Jennifer Jason Lee part, I was like, what are you doing? The fuck like, are we watching? Julia Roberts is great and she did as great as she could. I appreciate that Jennifer Aniston was game. Like she had the um, Phoebe Cates part. Yeah. And so there was a moment where she took off her jacket. She had a red bikini on over her t-shirt. Very fun. Um, and I think the internet did love that it was Brad, Brad playing Brad who like yeah. walked in on her, uh, or who was yeah. walked in on ma- masturbating by her. But yeah, like, we made a lot of bets about who was playing who, and I was yeah. wrong on pretty much all of them. Like, I thought for sure if you have Sean Penn coming back, he's going to be Mr. Hand. That's just like the most obvious Would have been a great choice. Ever. Nope. But it was Ray Liotta who was just really stern about it. And then I thought for sure, like, I thought that maybe like Henry Golding would play like Brad or something like that. But no, he was playing Mr. Vargas. Like, yeah. Okay. Like, he is the epitome of like a, a straight man. It, like, and not in a bad way. Just like, it was so bad casting. Shia played that character so insane. Oh, uh, his Spicoli. Spicoli. Yeah. I mean, I appreciated that he was like really into it, but that yes. Spicoli was going to kill somebody. Yeah. They, there were so many weird choices in that movie and that live read. Whatever. Anyway, back to this movie. Uh, so don't remake this movie, but I'm glad they raised a lot of oh, money for Cure. But also I have to say, like, I, I know that they had to do it in less than an hour, it sounds like, to get everybody oh, wow. into blah, 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 blah. But they cut out, they like went straight from the masturbation pool scene to like the dance, to like Spicoli getting walked in on by Mr. Hand. And it was like, you cut out pretty much all of the abortion and the Jennifer Jason Lee character and like all of that. They were just like, well, that part's inessential. Uh, well, I also heard they were like, oh, we had technical difficulties, which cut out those scenes. Mm, really? Just all those scenes? It's got, okay. Um, it seems like no one wanted to do those scenes. Um, back to this movie. And uh, we talked about Mila Jolovich in this film. Do you know she got married during this movie at 16 years old? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She, yeah. Yes. She ran away and she married her co-star who played her boyfriend at the film. Well, now I want to get into this character because this is the character I said early on, like I felt a completion with everyone. Here's a character that doesn't really work in the movie, in my opinion. And this is uh, Kevin Pickford, right? Uh, He's kind of the uh, looks a little bit like Pink Floyd. He's more the stoner guy. He dates Mila and he just disappears like he's in the movie and he vanishes. The party was going to be at his house. And his dad, oh, I love that dad. That dad is great. Like, gives me a John Doe Baker vibe or whatever that uh, that actor who became a uh, congressman. Um, uh, Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Baker. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So Joe Don Baker. He just, I thought he's great. By the way, the parents in this movie uh, are great. And they're present. And they're normal. And they, they love their kids. And they're supportive of their kids. But they're also like, oh. I want to go on about the parents, but let me go back to this Kevin Pickford. Um, He disappears. And do you know the whole reason why he disappears in this movie? I had heard a little bit about it. And it's interesting because I think you can see when you watch the movie knowing he's cut out, like vestigial parts that he's supposed to be important. He gets like one of the first, he gets the first intro scene in the car driving in with like Mia Jovovich, which by the way, Linklater said that he came up with the idea for that scene when he was under nitrous oxide on a dentist chair. He was like really high at the dentist and he started to hear sweet emotion in his head. It just popped into his head and he was like that in a GTO. That's how I opened the film. But from that opening shot of like them in the car, the close up of Mia making the the joint cigarette, you're like, oh, he's our star. He walks into the school with Pink Floyd. He walks in like they're buddies. They're like, hey, what's up? And then he disappears from the entire movie. Yeah. And I didn't really pick up on that because I sort of go on this whole other journey. But in the research for it, you know, Jason London and Sean Andrews did not get along. They did not get along at all. 
And so much so that like Linklater had to break them up from fighting at one point. And so this changed the entire ending of the movie because it was supposed to be about Pickford. Like what you said, it was supposed to be Pickford's movie. And it basically, you understand now why there's no dialogue between these two. It's like they're, they're in each other's scenes, but they just don't interact. Yeah. I mean, from the way this movie is set up, you would think that the football field is going to be the four of them. Yeah. Right? You that want it, like, it to be. These yeah, are the buddies sense. who enter the school. These are the buddies who are leaving the school. And it takes this whole, I mean, basically, Wooderson Spicoli'd the movie. You're mm-hmm. like, oh, Spicoli's so great. We love Spicoli. Put more Spicoli in this movie. And then they're like, well, we don't want to do anything with Pickford anymore. It sounds like, honestly, that Pickford and Mia Jovovich were just having their romance. You know, they were like in love. They were in this little bubble. They were not being very social, I suppose, with the rest of the cast. And so they weren't really meshing. And then also whatever the aggro deal was with like him in London. Well, because I do feel like he is, I think that we're watching Pink Floyd wrestle with the stoners versus the jocks, right? And and uh, Pickford represents this other lifestyle, and which is the lifestyle we're introduced to like the beginning of the film. Like, you know, mellow, chill time. And then you go and he has his, you know, his other friend, the the Wooderson, who is like the epitome of a jock. And he kind of like falls into the pot smoking crew, but it feels like the movie is cleaner if there are two crews that Pink Floyd is bouncing back and forth between. And, and, he, and he kind of is, but Wooderson gets lumped into the other crew. So it, it, it almost undercuts a little bit of the fun of that relationship. Because I think it's sort of like we want to see him in one world and we want to see him in the other world. But then in the way the movie is put together, they're a duo that go back and forth. And and Wooderson is not necessarily uh, having as much weight as Pink Floyd. So it's like it's a it's a it muddies it. Like if I was to pinpoint anything that 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 thing muddies I think something that's actually a really cool story, which is like finding your friend group. Like I'm in this group, but do I want to be in this group? Yeah. And and I think that that story is such an interesting story that is it's not whiffed, but slightly uh, defanged. Yeah. And in a way, I don't mind that because I think that kind of bifurcated friendship thing is a little bit old. Like, oh, mm-hmm. which group do I want to hang out with? And then it's almost like we'd be rooting for one. Right. Whereas if he is hanging out at the end with Wooderson, a guy who was clearly a football jock, you mm-hmm. know, from the way that you see him on the football field doing his like practice moves, like he 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 embraces both the football and the weed side. Mm-hmm. And you're like, all right, fine. I guess one person can kind of be everything. You don't have to pick and choose. But it, it does sort of speak to you know, how much of the script was like scripted, really, that you can take a major character and just kind of pop him off to the side and the film exists in its own shaggy way. It it makes me feel like, you know, I mean, this, of course, was so much of it was vaguely improvised. If you were kind of hanging out and drinking beers, he might be following you around. He might be like, ah, come up with the scene over here. Um, You see like an old stills from when they were shooting the movie that I think Jody too was supposed to be a much bigger character. Mm. Like there are shots of Jody hanging out at a cemetery. That is interesting. I get there are like moments that I am confused. Like, oh yeah, it feels like we want to pay more attention to them. And, but maybe that's like the tableau of this movie that's constantly evolving. We don't know who to follow. We're just kind of, the camera finds a new person. Yeah, I mean, I think what strikes me about it is it doesn't necessarily feel scripted as much as it just feels edited like in the editing mm-hmm. room he decided what he wanted you know there's like a whole shot i think of also jody climbing to the top of a tower to watch the sunrise and oh, i would wow. think if you filmed jody 
you know, climbing to the top of a tower to watch the sunrise, that there was a version of this movie that was Jody's story. You know, here's Jody. What is her part in this? You can't really get too much of a beat on her character. She's kind of cool. At the end, you're like, I guess she likes uh, Pink Floyd. I don't really know. She I love Jody. She her brother a little bit. Yeah. I like her, but it, I wonder what we lost. What we lost well, in like the cutting out the cemetery scene, the her talking. It, it feels like, I don't know, like this looseness of it, I think might have helped and hurt the film. Yes, because... I will say that there's a ton of deleted scenes online. You can kind of watch it. And I think the Criterion has a bunch of deleted scenes. I found it confusing in a way when that scene between Jody and Pink Floyd happens where she's like, well, you have a girlfriend. I'm like, oh, right, he does. But they're so separate. Like, he's mm-hmm. so separate from Simone for the majority of the film that when she said it, I was like, he does? Oh, right. Like, the, and I think that's where the movie gets muddled. And I'll also say, and tell me what you think here, like, why, and I never really thought about it until the viewing, why that end is interesting to me is because Pickford's not in it and because Wooderson is. Wooderson's smoking just as much weed as mm-hmm. Pink Floyd and is willing to sign that thing, right? He's like, he has no issues with it. Does it make uh, Pink Floyd's decision more interesting because it's not like they're evangelical like no we're not going to smoke weed we're just going to play football it's just sort of like yeah just lie just fucking lie we're going to lie you lie we'll all lie um and he can't lie and i think there is something that's like a benefit in disguise because it's like oh wow his friends are doing it they're not like they're not it's not like come to us we're pure we don't smoke weed we just drink beer it's like no his friends are just lying but he has a problem with that and i think there's something maybe more interesting about it because what you were saying, it wasn't drawn so cleanly, uh, like weed friends, football friends. Yeah, I mean, having survived high school, the idea of a couple where you forget they're a couple and like, oh, you just don't see each other for it, mm-hmm. like most of the day, that actually feels really natural. Mm-hmm. You know, if it was like, oh no, who is Pink Floyd going to date? Is he going to date right. Jody or is he going to date Joey Lauren Adams? I'd be like, mm-hmm. ugh, whatever. There's so many things I would roll my eyes at if they were happening because it would be cliche. Right. And the lack of the cliche is what I find interesting about it. Um, I love Joey Lauren Adams' character so much. So I feel, I think, I think I feel like robbed a bit. Like I feel mm-hmm. robbed of Jody time, even though I like how it works. I feel robbed of Joey time. Actually, I found this clip of um, Joey Lauren Adams and Parker Posey talking about how they became ultra best friends making this movie since they're rooming together. They're hanging out all the time. And how since this movie was so shaggy, they're like, well, we want a scene together. I made some great friends. Yeah, me too. So, I had no yeah. friends in LA. Yeah, I don't <laughs> have any friends either. Me and Joey are friends. I had yeah, one best friend in now. LA. Now I have, I have a few. So. Yeah, Parker and Joey, you know, had bonded so much personally that they were like, "Well, where's our scene? What's what's up?" And I'm like, you know. You're together at all these things, but yeah, you're right. And they said, well, we're going to write a scene. So we wanted to do a scene, and we wanted to do a scene that that wasn't about boys or nail polish or, you know, the things that, that men Or serious think. bonding. We wanted, like, a hangout, really natural Conversation. Scene. Like, girls, you know, really have conversations, believe it or not. <laughs> and they, they came back with, oh, we got a scene. And I'm like, okay, we're going to shoot that scene. You know, we just kind of went over it. I didn't, you know, it was their scene. And that drives the production crazy. It's like, what do you... A scene that's not even in the script. We're going to spend time shooting. So we had to kind of sneak it into the production. Last weekend, she went roller skating with that group she's in. <laughs> Parents without plans. <laughs> Parents without partners. <laughs> Parents, Parents without, without plans. plans. 
<laughs> and it was in the movie for the longest time. It survived many cuts. But the movie, because it had this sort of loose style, it was too long to begin with. So I had like a two hour and 45 minute, like, first cut. We yeah. hope that makes it. We yeah. hope it makes it, yeah. Oh, it was painful. It was really painful to drop that scene from the movie. Wow. By the way, uh, you know, Claire Danes came close. Well, not came close, but she auditioned for that Simone part, but they thought that she was too classy. You know that? Oh, weird. I heard she auditioned for Sabrina, but she was too young. Oh, well, well I bet you there's a lot of rumors. I mean, <laughs> everyone, like, yeah. everyone auditioned for this movie. I mean, like from, you know, Elizabeth Berkley, Ashley Judd, Brendan Fraser, John Favreau, Vince Vaughn. You know, uh, they didn't make the cut, but that's OK, yeah. because I think the right people did. Um, I mean, apparently Vince Vaughn, he didn't make it because they thought he looked too much like Ben Affleck. Which he and, does. Which he does. And, yeah. And, and when he was um, when he was rejected, he was like, you know what? This film's going to be big. Me and my buddy John Favreau have to do something on our own, and that kind of kicked them in the ass to make swingers. Wow! But and how wrong play... he was, <laughs> right? Because this movie to... was not big. <laughs> no, but I wanted to play that Parker and Joey scene because yeah, you. Know, I think one thing that just does slightly rub me the wrong way about Linklater films is that I think he has really good intentions. I really think he has good intentions, and I think somehow in the editing room he always edits his stories to only be about men. Mm. I just I think that that's his pattern. You know, I think he like, I think he is interested in interesting women. I think he likes putting them in the films. But here, you know, you kind of see like when he has a choice to make, he whittles down the Jody parts. He whittles down the Parker parts. He whittles down Joey. Like he cuts out their scene. He is just drawn to seeing Wiley Wiggins walk around and look amazed at stuff. And I like Wiley Wiggins walking around and looking amazed at stuff. But I just think like when you put the scissors in his hand, he tends to cut out the female stories. And it just... It slowly drives me nuts about his movies. I don't disagree with you. Um, I think where maybe he succeeds is in the casting because the performers transcend the roles, if that makes sense. Like, I remember Parker Posey. I remember Joey Lauren Adams. I remember these people and the weight that they carry as actors actually, I think, elevate the materials. So I think that in a way, while he might be cutting down parts and, and telling stories, I think, like, you know, there are some directors who are like, I don't know that experience, that female experience. He's not against it. He's letting them shoot that scene. He wants them to shoot that scene. He wants them, but it's also like, but, but that's... Use, use it. it. No, of course, you know, but I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, and I want to make sure I'm, like, drawing, like, a careful line. Like, I, I think he directs women very well and that when you look at the female characters in this film, they're not, like, idiot bimbos. They're not just there for male attention. He's not leering. They're costumed really well. They're costumed really fun and naturally. Like, none of these are, like, the token bimbo girl, even though, like, Joey right. Lauren Adams is kind of funny. And ridiculous. she definitely feels like her own living person. Nobody feels, like, filtered through the teen boy gaze. And I think that's really nice and really refreshing about this film. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, he just, he can't help but be a bit of a bro. I, you know, it's funny whenever I see Linklater, I'm always like, oh, he doesn't appear the way I think of him. And especially in that doc of Days Confused, like, oh, he, he seems, or he has an energy about him that is less sheepish director, like, oh, I'm making my movie and more like, yeah, I'm a fucking Austin dude. Like, let's hang out. Like I, you know, like he is like, I'm. I'm sometimes surprised at his size. and so, I mean, he's changed in many years, but when I see that documentary, I'm like, oh, he is more of that, capturing some of that football vibe. Yeah, I mean, I think he kind of, he does exist, I think, really well in kind of like a bro-bro vibe, which is valuable in its own way. 
maybe this is also part of my just like resentment that the daughter gets cut out of boyhood when I thought she was the best part of that movie. Mm. Um, she didn't want to do it. I understand, but still she's so good. It was just like, ah, um, but you, you hear kind of a young link later and that bro energy. I think when he talks about going to Hollywood to make his pitch for this film, I just found myself in this great position of like, have kind of cool idea that they might take and studio kind of interested. It was that one little window you're occasionally given in this lifetime where things, you know, hook up. And I said, we'd like to fly you out to L.A. and talk about this American graffiti idea you have. But suddenly I'm flying to L.A. first class. I hadn't done that before. I didn't even know how to put the seat, the uh, tray up for your, you know, breakfast or whatever. I mean, he was completely savvy and hugely cool and sophisticated. And he was a kid at a drive-in, all in the same person. I'd had a little lunch with Jim right before. And he was talking about, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing your pitch, pitch. He kept hearing, saying the word pitch. And I'm like, am I supposed to do something like pitch? What is that? I remember just thinking like, this is that moment where your whole life hangs in a balance. So I remember just, just talking. I didn't like jump up on the desk, like something out of the player where you go first shot close up of, I just started talking about the movie and the characters and the tone of it. I love that. I mean, I love that he, like in many respects, like, like the character, like the real life af- actor, Wiley Wiggins, like coming out to Hollywood, not really knowing what to expect and, you know, falling into it. Um, to your point, you might be right that he errs on the side of telling more male stories. But I think where he transcends it back to the, my original point, which is like the casting, he is able to cast people that carry a weight to it. And I think the uh, the Adam Goldberg and Anthony Rapp story with Cynthia is like a, yet another perspective. So I think he knows the types of people he wants to show. He casts it in a way that allow them to bring the most to it. So nothing feels stereotypical. He lets it be loose and improvised. So he actually benefits from not being such a control freak. But in the edit space, then he can use whatever he wants. He may be more attracted or maybe more drawn to the story that he can wrap his own head around. But I think... All of these characters, Parker Posey and Joey Lord and Adams and everybody, like they really do pop. Um, and in another movie, they might fizzle because the director may have written those scenes and not trusted the actors to bring something to them. Like to have a director let you write a scene and shoot a scene, like I know he didn't use it, but he intended to use it. I still think I give him props for that. I don't think he was just doing that for lip service. No, I don't think so either. I mean, it, and I, he, I think I'm just being hard on him because he's so close to nailing it. That, like the fact that he never nails it in the final edit. I'm like, ah, you're so right. close. Like you can tell he's such a good guy. Um, and I appreciate that he like listens to his actresses. I mean, Parker Posey, that line that she has when she's threatening the girls where she says, wipe that face off your head. Yeah. You know, that was her line because she had been doing a Brecht play and that was one of the bad translations of a Brecht line. And oh, she's wow. like, that's just the funniest thing ever. And she like brought it to him. She's like, I really want to use it. And he like trusts her. And he's like, yes, absolutely. But by the way, isn't it kind of funny when you hear that interview, how much they're saying they wanted to make an, an American graffiti, mm-hmm. despite how much uh, Linklater has just denied it? I mean, he said at one point that calling this film American Graffiti in the 70s is like saying Goodfellas is a Godfather remake. You know, I think, well, we were talking about how American graffiti can be this uh, pejorative term, you know, it, like, because I don't think American graffiti is that great. And I think at a certain point, it's like, why can't it just be dazed and confused? Why does Cooley High have to be 
a black American graffiti? Why does this have to be a 70s American graffiti? Can't it just be a teen film? Like, um, and I think, you know, it's sort of like, no, it's my own thing. I think what closer to what Linklater has expressed is what you said in the beginning, which is like, this is an anti-John Hughes film. Like he said, you know, he, his intent was to create an inverse John Hughes movie. And I think that's where we should be rewarding it. This is a, you know, a time where you're watching movies that can't hardly wait and things like that. And he did something really interesting and, and broke the mold of the space. So I think just to say like, everyone's trying to follow in the footsteps of this. Like, oh, it's just a star Wars. Oh, it's just a, this, it does make the thing feel less um, special. And I think these movies are special. I think Cooley High is special. I think this movie is special. I think Fast Times is special. And when you just say, it's like this other thing that you know, uh, fuck that other thing that you know. Because I, I also don't think that <laughs> thing is great. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like, I, like in, in a way, like, I get it. I, I mean, but I also get like, part of the world is we need to have a one-liner to understand how this movie is. And I think every time you do a movie or every time you pitch, you're trying to say, it's like this, but like this, but it's like that, but like that. And you have to like, and you start to cannibalize your own idea to make it so familiar. So someone will take a risk on you to make your thing that hopefully isn't derivative, but feels familiar. And I think that that's a, you know, this industry has gotten so much more into that world of just like, what is the thing? Who is in it? Oh, they're from TikTok. Great. We'll put them in it. Like there's like, what is the safety that you can give me? Because original ideas are scary. And, uh, you know, and if we can't be assured that it will be responded to in the same way, then we won't do it. Well, I, I think it's interesting to look at Linklater really trying to parse the difference himself. I mean, he said that this film was going to get compared to Fast Times and that he really rejected it because he said that Fast Times was for shiny mall hopping surfers and that these people were mm. downscale, disconnected and the Midwestern alternative. Okay. And he also said that like where he really saw, I, mean, I actually disagree with him saying that Fast Times think, is shiny. Yeah. That feels I, like he has it really. And they're not mall hopping. They just have one yeah. mall. But anyways, he wanted this to be downscale, disconnected, disbeatings. Like he is really hammering the idea that this is a sad story. I mean, that's part of what he uses to draw the difference between himself and American Graffiti is he's like, American Graffiti has this nostalgia. It's like, oh, the 50s were so simple and carefree. Whereas mm -hmm. with the 70s, he was like, ew, this is the reality we lived in. I don't want to return to that. Right. And I have to say, this film really got me thinking about the difference between like perception and intention. Because so much of his intention with this film was to say how much the 70s sucked and like how shitty it was for these kids to be living here and how miserable everything it was, everything was. And when I watch this film, I'm like, this looks great, honestly. Like right. the freedom that these kids have. He wanted this oh, to be yeah. a film about impression. Like he said, this is about oppression. This is about domestic oppression, institutional, school, geographic. And I'm like... Man, this looks like the most peaceful fucking time. I would love to go back and live there. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. Um, but I think it's the oppression of high school. And I think that's what you're dealing with. Like you're dealing with Wiley Wiggins has to enter into a system of oppression. I got to get beat and I got to get beat in front of people. But to get accepted, I need and he'll to probably sign... wind up beating people. Oh, absolutely. And then it's like, I got to sign this document. I, I find that moment of impression or oppression. I'm sorry to be really present in a very simple scene, which is the baseball scene. At the end of the game, all the good game, good game, good game, good game, good game. You know, it's sportsmanship. We got to show sport. You know, and yeah. no or like one, that speech. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I'm just saying like there's this no, their coaches like go out there, slap everybody's hands, say good game. It's like, it's so by rote. Like, why are we doing this? What are we doing? And I think this whole movie is, 
why are we doing this? And some people are questioning it. Some people are like, I need to do it because then I'm accepted into it. Like there's so, you know, get on your knees, ask him to marry you. What would you do for me? Anything you want, you know, and it's sort of this. It's like that speech that Cynthia gives about preparation, Mm -hmm. that this is for preparation. I'm just saying, if we're going to go out, we're going to drive around, we should just do something. Yeah, you know, you're right, man. I'm just going to, you know, get drunk, maybe get laid or get in a fight. I'm serious, man. We should be up for anything. I know we are. But what? I mean, God, don't you ever feel like everything we do and everything we've been taught is just to service the future? Yeah, I know. It's like it's all preparation. Right. But what are we preparing ourselves for? Death. Life of the party. It's true. You know, but that's valid. Because if we're all going to die anyway, shouldn't we be enjoying ourselves now? You know, I'd like to quit thinking of the present, like right now, as some minor insignificant preamble to something else exactly man that's what everybody in this car needs it's some good old worthwhile visceral experience but even so still it just it looks like just such freedom compared to like the education that i had you know the idea that teachers are kind of running around and being free and encouraging you to think a little bit from yourself or actually what really struck me in this watch is how much the people that they're learning from were shaped by the 60s, which was a thing that I missed before. But there's that really close um, cut between like a middle school teacher and the high school teacher. And you can see the 60s revolution that they've lived in. They're trying to impart it on their kids for good and for bad, you know, from Vietnam to, you know, fight the power. Uh, Mr. Payne, sir, you know, every second that you could let us out early would really increase our chances of survival. It's like our sergeant told us before one trip into the jungle. Men, 50 of you are leaving on a mission. 25 of you ain't coming back. Okay. You know, the 68 Democratic Convention was probably the most bitchin' time I ever had in my life. Hey, guys, one more thing. Hey, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American bicentennial 4th of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. But I would also argue that the parents and the adults here are not absolute, right? They're very different. Like, uh, like Wiley's mom is like, you, this is your get-out-of-jail-free card. And, you know, and the coach isn't, the coach is a jock, but he's not like, God damn it. You know, like he does make some speeches in it, but it's like a, from a caring point of view, don't hang out with these stoners. The dad is like, we're not going on this vacation. We're staying home because we don't like, you know, it's like there is a presence. There are different types of parents. And by the way, like their parents are super supportive and super disciplined, you know, disciplinary. Like I love that the mom comes out with the shotgun. You know, it's a heightened moment, of course. I yeah. will say like the per- the percentage of adults in Texas who just randomly have guns in this film is pretty high. <laughs> I guess you're right? right. I mean, there's her with the shotgun, and then there's the guy at the gas station who's mad that they smashed his mailbox, which was a thing that that actually um, Linklater did himself. He drove around listening all the time to ZZ Top and smashing mailboxes, and Amazing. then that guy just chases after them with a handgun. I mean, there's a real stand your ground energy in this film. But it's also capturing something that's very specific to him, and that to me is what Linklater is. They they are very much rooted in his experiences, and we talk about this and all of these coming-of-age movies, they're all based in 
I did this, I saw this, this is that, and here I am casting kids who are also bringing their own experiences in. So here is Parker Posey and Joey Lauren and Adams doing a scene that is based on their experiences. Here's an improvised moment where Rory Cochran is talking about George Washington and hemp because that's what's something he knows about. Here's something, you know, everybody is bringing their own thing to it. I mean, like an executive when this film um, came out after a test, he was like, this is the most socially irresponsible film that Universal has ever produced because of all of the wow. smell of the weed. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like Linklater said um, that calling this his 70s American graffiti would be like calling it Goodfellas, blah, blah, blah. But he almost thought about ending it the same way that Goodfellas does, because he was saying, you know, this moment in history right after this, like weeks after this is when punk starts. And he was like, I thought about ending this movie with a punk song, with a Ramon song, just to say, here is the future, which would give it kind of a fun parallel. Yeah. One of the things that he really had to fight for, by the way, is... One of the big ideas that they had for making money off of the soundtrack was that they were going to use all of the 70s songs he wanted, except they're going to be covered by like modern MTV bands. Ooh. And that's the music they wanted to use for the film. So he had to put this huge fight over it. He was like, if we're going to get videos from on MTV that are promoting Dazed and Confused, we ha- they have to be cover songs. And he was so hell bent against that. He gave up all the money he was going to make off that soundtrack. In order to be like, it has to be the real songs. Well, and that's why I said it. This budget, I think it was one sixth of the film was spent on music. And they didn't even get all the music he wanted because you talked about the end of the Ramon song, which, by the way, talk about Goodfellas, didn't Scorsese want it to be the Sex Pistols. Like that idea of like, we're going into another generation. And I feel like both of those movies end on, you know, we're out of this world and we're into another world. It's an interesting idea to have punk figures in. But the original ending of this, he wanted it to be rock and roll by Led Zeppelin and uh, Robert Plant denied the usage. Oh, it's a pity. It's a yeah. pity. But you know what? You can steal the title and it's all fine. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Well, like I've referenced this before. Uh, this movie was not a hit, even though everyone wanted to be in it. It became a cult hit, um, you know, on video and DVD and all that sort of stuff. Um, I probably saw it. I may have saw this in the theater because I was a big movie nerd and I saw all the movies. Um, but it uh, it made just short of $8 million. And that was on a $6.9 million budget. This movie cost $6.9 million. I mean, you don't really see that on screen. Um, maybe in the location dressing. Um, but yeah, I mean, they said even most of their clothes because Texas was a vacuum mm-hmm. um, that they were able to get most of those like original 70s clothes just from thrift stores that they wow. were all just still there. Which the, to me, it's funny because I think the clothes look so bright and colorful. They don't look original to me. They look Delia's, especially yeah. Mia Jovovich's vests. They just look yeah. so they look too perfect. So when I heard that they were actually period seventies, I was surprised. The jeans, no, I, the jeans, I will believe they are period. Yeah, 70s. the beard. Yeah, and when they're pulling up the jeans with that like little uh, what is it, like a wrench or whatever, it's so great. Uh, the zipper. Um, I but just yeah, kept so, thinking, how does she pee? Oh wait, I was like, like, like you what? don't. You like, just what? don't for the whole, the whole night. night. You're like, then yeah. they, they really won't fit. 
Well, you can't drink out that many beers. Uh, so There's basically, no point. Wear baggy pants. That's terrible. <laughs> Amy, it's fashion. It's one night. Enjoy it. Uh, but the the soundtrack is something that went on to be double platinum. Uh, and that's back when like soundtracks actually did that kind of a thing. So this movie became super profitable. This movie grew. And I think like interesting comedies, you know, there's not enough stars in it to break through at this point in this time where I think people were seeing movies like Can't Hardly Wait with like Seth Green and stuff like that. Uh, this movie is kind of taking a different path, but the effect it has is uh, uh, ginormous on Hollywood. Uh, but you referenced earlier that people didn't necessarily, you know, they said that it was, you know, it, the drug use and stuff like that. People were frowning on it. How was it received critically, though? I, I could see critics liking it, but now I don't know. Some critics did really like it, but they actually got bad reviews, which you don't really see on Rotten Tomatoes anymore because they didn't, you know, there's a lot of them for little papers that they didn't put online at the time. Yeah. It's right before they put everything online. But yeah, when you go through and read the original reviews, they weren't that great. Like this one is from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. It says, Dazed and Confused could just as easily be called Anxious and Depressing. That title oh, would sum wow. up most of Linklater's many young characters as well as the lingering effects of his overloaded film. Other reviewer calls it a messy yearbook set in a wilderness of drab malls and anonymous subdivisions and says that the film is rife with bullies, sadists, and mean teen witches and in a defiantly retrograde gesture, Linklater identifies the more sympathetic characters as the ones who smoke marijuana. The choice hmm. of whether or not to sign an anti-dope pledge becomes a critical test of character, which is not an especially inspiring moral issue. He says that the characterizations sputter and flare out as the movie skips from one hectic scene to another. There are too many pointless pranks, too many third-hand stereotypes, and too much period music. The film sinks to the level of its subject, and it seems pushy and frantic rather than funky and relaxed. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, I'm just looking, I just was Googling as you were reading that and listening to that, like, what the landscape looked like. Because I kept on saying, like, oh, it's up against these other movies. Like, the 90s... This is a, a real outlier of what probably people wanted to see because, you know, we're talking about Clueless. We love Clueless. We did our episode on Clueless. Um, but that is a mainstream, fun, big, you know, very much like a, a character piece Hollywood movie, like 10 Things I Hate About You, She's All That, Never Been Kissed, American Pie. This movie is subtle in what it's choosing. Like all the, like they are running in the same worlds, but... I think it's telling a more smart version than any of those stories. I think it's the reason why we're not talking about American Pie in the series. It's the reason why we're not talking about Can't Hardly Wait. Those are fun movies. They're they're poppy movies. They're not universal. They're not gonna they're not gonna last the t the test of time because there's no there there. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think there's gonna be a lot of movies where there's no there there. It's like fun. It's like yeah, party, hook up with a girl, get laid, whatever it is. This movie is dealing with bigger things, more relatable things, and it doesn't just feel. But I think get. As a reviewer in this time, you're probably looking for more of like, who's the main character? What's the thing? Why aren't they arcing? What is the, you know, it's not like hangout movies are, I think, are hard to judge. You know, if you don't want to hang out with these people, then you hate it. <laughs> and I do respect that Linklater took, you know, the structure that he was doing with Slacker in a way and tried to see if he could make a studio film with that. You know, that's yeah. an ambition that I that I respect a lot. And then he went he on and actually created a, an insanely giant studio film, you know, a school of rock. And then that goes on and becomes musicals and TV shows. And literally, uh, I, I think school of rock, school of rock, like that 
organization even came out of the movie, or maybe the organization <laughs> came first. I don't even know. Yeah, but, uh, right. School of Rock is so fun, but he doesn't, I think, get like the broad indie critical darling respect until he does the Before trilogy, which he starts yeah. filming right after this. Like that's what really pushes him over the edge. And yeah. by the way, I was thinking, you know, because like his career is so so eclectic, which I admire about it. You know, when he got really into like pushing the edges of animation, doing Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, you know, when you were mentioning up at the top that this happened in the year of Waco, which made a very big impression on me mm-hmm. growing up in Texas, you know, that wasn't too far right. away from where I grew up. So we all knew about Waco. Waco in Texas and in that moment, there's kind of this weirdo stoner slacker-ish energy that rises up, especially in Austin, you know, people reacting to the Waco Branch Davidian complex, people like Alex Jones really finding the core of who they are going to become from witnessing Waco and starting to like build up this conspiracy theorist distrust, which is something that Linklater himself was a little bit aligned to. Like when he was making this movie, one of the things he was trying to do with the money was buy David Koresh's um, 1969 Camaro. He really what? wanted that because he kind of admired Koresh. He said that Koresh, you know, was just a failed artist and that he thought it, this was like a whole all-American story. You know, guns, cops, religion, music, cowboy ethics, broken dreams. Which wow. is why I think it's interesting, and I had never put this together until now, that Alex Jones is in two Linklater films. Really? Did you know that? Mm-hmm. No. Alex Jones is in two of them. And not Slacker, where you'd expect a weirdo to show up talking. He's This is actually him. He's in both Scanner Darkly and Waking Life. This is him in Waking Life. Enemy propaganda rolling across the picket line. Lay down, G.I., lay down, G.I. We saw it all through the 20th century. And now in the 21st century, it's time to stand up and realize that we should not allow ourselves to be crammed into this rat maze. We should not submit to dehumanization. I don't know about you, but I'm concerned with what's happening in this world. I'm concerned with the structure. I'm concerned with the systems of control. Those that control my life and those that seek to control it even more. I want freedom. That's what I want. And that's what you should want. That character, by the way, if you can't remember it, he's driving around a car with his own um, loudspeakers on the top of it, demanding to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's so funny because I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize that that was, I thought that was just a character and actor. It's like, now, of course I know it, but that, doesn't Alex <laughs> Jones have some uh, connection to Mike Judge as well? Because Mike Judge, when we did the Idiocracy episode, didn't they have like a whole Alex Jones, uh, Mike Judge like interview? Like, I mean, so he is a part of Texas and this energy that I feel like, yeah, they both like. It's true. I mean, I will say, you know, there's a lot of talk about Texas as a red state. I think Texas is just sort of a fuck everybody state. We're right. like, we're Texas. Like, don't tell us what to do. And that makes us, you know, Texas is not conservative in the way where we don't like weirdos. I mean, right. I guess I'm not telling you anything that you don't know about Austin uh, and like Texas culture, but that extends to beyond Austin. You know, Texas in general, I think, sticks up for weird people, yeah. at least where I grew up in San Antonio. And so, yeah, I think like Linklater has gone on to be like, I didn't know he was that crazy. Like, right. I thought he was just a kook. I think Texas right. is like. We'll pat this kook on the head and listen to him. He's a kook, right? He's a kook, but it's fine. We love our kooks. Right. We embrace our kooks, and then sometimes our kooks get embraced by the world, and then they become more powerful, and then all of a sudden we're saying uh, things that didn't happen that clearly did happen, and then we get into trouble. Um, Exactly. By the way, we don't really plug too many other podcasts on the show, but if you haven't listened to the reply all about who actually founded QAnon, it's a really good episode. It just came out. But by the way... To end this on, I would say, a pop quiz note, Paul, Mm -hmm. as one of the biggest fans ever of Dazed and Confused, 
I want you to tell me how many times they say the word man. Okay. Um, geez. Is it more or less than the time that Wiley Wiggins scratches his nose? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say more. I'd say that man. It's an hour and 45 minute movie. I'm going to say they're saying man about once a minute. But let me give you a couple more. 155. Higher. What? Yeah. Twice it a is minute? 203 times. I appreciate wow. you trying to break down the per minute count. Yeah. Wow. 203 <laughs> times. I love that. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So it's a, a little bit less than twice a minute. Yeah. Wow. 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 All right. Interesting. Now, I guess, Amy, you know, would that offend the aliens? Wait, no, that's, oh, wait, no, that's, that's not less than twice a minute. Is it? No, I forgot math. Oh, well, it's fine. It, it's not twice a minute totally, but it's it's yeah. close to it. It is a little bit less? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little bit less. You were right. And no one's going to call you on All that. Right. Um, but Amy, you know, hearing the word man that many times, will that upset the aliens? And that's the question I want to ask you. You know, after now watching all of these coming-of-age movies, we've seen such a wide swath. Um, you know, what do you think the aliens think of this? And more importantly, what do you think the aliens... What do you think is the movie that represents the perfect high school experience? Yeah. And what should be on the list? I mean, this is actually a really tough question to parse because we're watching good movies. What belongs on the list? What is the movie that is the full high school experience? Because in many respects, there isn't one high school experience, right? There isn't culturally, economically, there are different high school experiences. We've, we've seen that in this movie. Um, and so I don't know if there's like where there might be like one style of Vietnam films or one this, you know, there might be shades of gray here. Maybe this is a, you know, a category that deserves more, or maybe this list deserves to have different viewpoints on the same thing. You know, like how can we represent different groups as experiences? You know, I obviously, I can't separate myself from my own growing up, my own background and what I respond to. Like, so I'm definitely more, in the dazed and confused camp than I am probably the Cooley High camp as far as what I can relate to. Um, but there are also so many similarities between these movies as well because I think you look at these movies and, you know, this one is like, I think all these movies have driving and running and hanging and going to the mall or the emporium or the observatory. You know, there's there's so violence. Like, they all share similar things. Fights. Uh, like I just mentioned, all those things. So there's all these similarities. But then there are all these differences. Like, you know, it's like they all are hitting the same beats, but differently. Do you get that? Do you feel that? Yeah, the universality of it, I get. Yeah. I get. Which I think, honestly, that universality, though, is an argument for the fact that we could just pick one, it, you know, mm -hmm. and move on. It kind of it covers a lot of that same emotional right. love. Right. Like, it's tough. I mean, because from where we've been, we've, we've done Mean Girls, Fast Times, Stand and Deliver, Rebel, Rebel Without, Without a Cause, cause 400, 400 blows. blows, and Cooley High, and now Dazed and Confused. And of that group, I will say, like, the first two that I'm inclined that I would put forth as, like, the ones I might want to talk about or keep on the list as contenders to be on the permanent list, my top two are probably 400 blows and Stand and Deliver. Mm. You know, I, I really think Stand and Deliver works for me in that it captures, I think, some of this, like, even shaggy ethos of, like, characters you get to know over time, characters you really get to, like, build and have this world in. I think you get a touch of that kind of, like, rebel energy 
with Lou Diamond Phillips and his whole character arc. I love so much the, the emphasis on education and hope and inspiration in that film. The idea of how we can learn and become better people. It does have, a, I think, more of an adult element to it than the rest of the films. But yet, honestly, I think that film is just great. I think that film is really funny. I think that film is captivating. I think that film could easily deserve a spot on this list. And also, I want to say, you know, 400 Blows for really kickstarting the whole French New Wave look for bringing together the cinema verite that we saw then spill out and become really influential in all of these films we've covered post that movie to see the way that it like really touched on Spielberg's life. There's a really strong argument to be made for that and for that being like the best of the best film maybe from the French New Wave. Like that might be the one to pluck out, although there's a ton more to watch. We have we have to stay like a band apart. We have so many French movies right. that we could pull in, but you Those know, are my I, top two contenders. And it's interesting because I don't know if I'd say necessarily they're like the ones I would put on the right. most. I don't know where what I would do either. I, I, I'm really wrestling with it because uh, I will say I just watched Days and Confused. So I'm definitely in that mind space right now. And I think that Days and Confused does some things that all of these movies do. And probably uh, because of all these movies, it does them, you know, it can kind of take a little from here and there. You know, 400 Blows was an amazing film. And I think if you look at the ending of 400 Blows and the ending of Days and Confused, there's a lot of similarities. Like mm-hmm. running, breaking free of this society that's holding us back, right? I think that- And High. And Cooley High, yeah. And, and you know, I, I love that that's the end for a lot of these things. Um, I sadly think that Mean Girls is easy enough to just push over to the side, right? Like in the sense of great, funny, good, but- as we've moved forward, each one of these other movies had a lot of weight. Um, I, yeah, I odd- love Mean Girls. I adore Mean Girls. Me and I, I don't think it's any slight on Mean Girls that it doesn't make the list. No, I no, And I, I think that uh, Rebel Without a Cause, which is a movie that I really loved, um, felt to me like, while great, and I loved it, and a classic. And this is the thing that I'm having a hard time with. We need a James Dean on our list. I do believe that. I haven't seen enough James Dean, but so in that way, I want to keep it in the conversation because mm-hmm. I think that movie transcends uh, teen film and becomes James Dean film. And I think that's that's an argument to have. Yeah, I also, it is funny. Richard Linklater said that part of why he wanted Dazed and Confused to be said in one night is because he thought that would keep it from being too melodramatic. You know, mm-hmm. whereas like you're yeah. editing in like yeah. fast times and you can include the abortion scene. He's like, if I keep it in one no- one night, it won't be that crazy. But Rebel Without a Cause is the most melodramatic movie we have. And that's oh, a one-nighter. Yeah. No, I mean, melodramatic, like, that, that's all in the way that plays. I mean, like, but I think, but when I talk about melodramatic, I think you can mix and match. Like what Linklater is afraid to do, Amy Heckerling does with mm-hmm. uh, an amazing precision from comedy to drama. And I think that Richard Linklater avoids that and talks about issues that are more teen-based. And I think that, it's hard because uh, I agree with you. Stand and Deliver is like, I, I don't know. I'm really like, I look at each one of these and go like, well, that's such a, a great, unique thing about this. It's I so much easier to be making fun of a list or to be tearing yeah. it apart than it is to, that we're just saying yes and no. And now we're right. saying like, oh God. How do you, how do you, how do you justify it? It's hard because they share so much universality, but then they, each exceed in different ways where others don't. And so you're like, oh, I want a little bit of that and a little bit of this. I don't know. I'm really mixed, Amy. I, uh, 
I think Flavor I'm, Blows. I'm going to say Stand and Deliver is mine. I'm thinking okay. about it. Wow. That, that would be my pick. If it's about just purely putting something on the list, I go Fast Times Over, Days and Confused because I want to get a female director on that list. And I think that that's important. Yeah. If I, I also think that what she's able to do, which is bend melodrama and comedy, that's the only movie that I think deals with such weight and also has such high, high comedy, big, broad moments. So I elevate that movie above other ones. I think Cooley High has uh, that as well, actually. They do some really big comedy moments. And then that it's... um. So maybe my argument is, oh boy, um, I recognize the French New Wave and I appreciate the French New Wave and I love that film, but I'm going to bet that maybe there's another film out there that does it better and say that I I think that there's maybe an argument, my two, which I I don't have a firm answer on, and I'm surprising myself by saying this right now, is the argument is Cooley High and Fast Times. I think there's elements of both of those things that make them incredibly unique in this conversation. I don't know which way I fall in it. I Because I can look at Cooley High and go like, oh, X, Y, and Z. And I can look at Fast Times and go X, Y, and Z. And uh, earned, I don't know. Because they both represent something that I think is hard to do. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. And maybe maybe Fast Times has an edge. Maybe. Yeah, I think Fast Times probably does have an edge. But I also don't know if that's just my perspective of the film. Yeah. You know, which is a hard thing to parse. And I think that's a hard thing. And what we've realized with the AFI list it's people's perspectives. Like, oh, I love John Wayne. So John Wayne's movie. You know, like there's like there's a certain um uh universality about what those people believe is is worthy of the list. So I don't know. Those are my two. Um I would love to hear what your two is, everybody listening, not just Amy. Uh and you can do that on Geneva. We're gonna put up a little poll on Geneva, which you can find in our show notes. Uh we have a link to how to get there. Um Facebook has been talking. Facebook has been talking, you know, they've been asking themselves as they watch each film, should this go on? Should it not? Should this go on? Should this not? You know, I have to say, I really respect these guys. They're being tougher than we are. I think we need to get tougher, dude. Facebook so far has looked at each film individually on its own. They said no to Mean Girls. They said no to Stand and Deliver. They said no to Cooley High. They said no Trouble Without a Cause. The only one they said yes to is 400 Blows. Hmm. But is that is that the easy choice? That's that is none of that seems easy to me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the easy choice in the sense of like four hundred blows is the original. It's the artistic. It's the you know, it's the powerful film. I don't know. I mean, because I was thinking that way too. It's like, well, you have to look at that because it's so uh, defining and it creates. You know, I don't know. I I'm, I'm not saying I'm against Facebook, but I I was. Uh, I'm just also saying I, I can see the argument for that because you don't have to really parse through what came later. And I, I think the issue I have with this list sometimes is it lives so much in the past. And it's like this battle of what came first versus what maybe did it better or we are so in the past that we refuse to look at what is being made now. Like there are like, you know, of course, there's always going to be something in the past that started the trend or started the thing. But uh, I'm not saying get rid of the past, but we have to balance it a little bit too. But again, let's continue this conversation. Let's see where people fall on Geneva. And as you are debating that, you can also be getting ready for our horror miniseries, our next miniseries, miniseries two. We have picked out four horror films. And of course, we're going to have a fifth slot that is the audience pick, just like this one today. So start brainstorming your picks now. You want to hear our four though? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Do it. Let's do it. All right. 
First up, we are going to do the 1932 version of Frankenstein, which was kicked off the AFI list. Let's bring it back. Let's see what we're missing out on. I like that. Then from there, we're going to do the Babadook, then Night of the Living Dead. Then we're closing out our picks with Ganja and Hess before finding out what you guys want to talk about. I am so excited. I can't wait to see what people bring into the conversation because I would never have guessed that Days and Confused would have been here. Uh, Although I haven't thought of what I think will be. I'm going to write it down on a piece of paper and then when we get to it, I'll see if I'm right. How about that? Okay. I'll write down my pick too of what I think people are going to pick. But I have a feeling I'm going to be surprised, which I appreciate. These are the guys who put Sing Street number three. Who knows? I love it. I love it. More of that. We're going to jump in with something that was kicked off the AFI list. Uh, We are jumping in with Frankenstein. Um, which I'm excited to see. I don't think I've ever seen Frankenstein. I've seen Young Frankenstein. Uh, I'm excited, and let's take a listen to the classic trailer. Oh, it's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! When this dead hand moves... The monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. (laughs) To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. All right, Frankenstein is available uh, wherever you get your movies streaming. And Amy, this has been a pleasure to wrap up Back to School with you. Um, I'm excited to, to be scared with you. <sighs> Me too. Let's get spooky. 